When we look at addiction as, as a family disease, it is also kind of, I think, the family's responsibility, breaking down those two words, it's their response and their ability to make changes not just on the level of the individual, but on the whole family unit to kind of try to help and support that person, but also to be more aware of and to change any behaviors that might be enabling that addiction to continue. What is up, Fit Farm fam? Welcome to the Fit Pharmacist Healthcare Podcast. My name is Dr. Adam Martin. I am a practicing pharmacist, nutrition consultant, author, and lover of living life to the fullest. Each episode on the podcast, I will dispense to you an innovator and expert in the world of healthcare so they can share their story, their struggles, and best practice tips to empower you to nail your nutrition, master your mindset, fit in fitness, and take your level of impact to the next level with simple solutions for how to live with passion and purpose. Thank you for spending your time with me today. Now let's discuss how to dispense your full potential. Addiction, a very serious topic affecting not just people in pharmacy, but everyone in our lives. Maybe you have someone, a friend, a family member, someone you work with, or maybe even yourself who have struggled with addiction. It is a very serious topic and something that all of us are trying to combat and help people get through as it's a rising problem, especially in our country. So what better person to talk about this with than my very good friend, Steve Wise, whose mission and, and focus is helping people through this process of addiction. Steve Wise is an author, speaker, and corporate wellness trainer who specializes in helping companies and individuals reach their full potential. After graduating with his master's degree from Pitt, Steve went on to become a licensed clinical social worker and has spent the past five years working in private practice. During this time, Steve designed his own unique curriculum in which he has used to create his book and his business, Mental Fitness LLC. On a more personal note, Steve has always considered Pittsburgh his home. Black and yellow. Yeah, man. <laughs> he is married, has a six-month-old son. Congratulations. Thank you. Welcome to the land of no sleep. Thank you. <laughs> has five adopted dogs and a cat, for good measure, right? Winston. Yeah, he's cool. He's also the author of The Amazing Chase series, which promotes dog rescue and adoption efforts. Steve's passion to help others struggling with substance abuse is fueled by his own loss growing up of a loved one to drug overdose. After spending his first two years in the field working as a counselor with people taking methadone, Steve then transitioned into helping those taking Suboxone. By utilizing a non-judgmental, solution-focused approach, Steve helps clients to master their mental fitness, achieving their full potential. Steve, welcome aboard the Thanks, Fit Adam. Pharmacist Healthcare Podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, no doubt. So this topic of addiction, it's it's very serious. It can get really personal and really evoke a lot of emotion, a lot of pain, um, either from the past or from a current situation that someone or someone we know is struggling with. Um, so I think that's a good place to start with this podcast is really talk about what is addiction and how does it work? And then as a pharmacist, touching on how does medicated assistant treatment or MAT fit as part of one's recovery process? Sure. 
So when I think of addiction, I think of it on a spectrum. There's use, abuse, and dependency. Use is your recreational use. Most of us recreationally use alcohol. Some people recreationally use marijuana, and you won't see many negative side effects. When it stems into abuse is where we see those negative effects. We see people getting in trouble at their work, having trouble with their relationships, perhaps having legal issues. And then at the highest level of addiction is the physical dependency. That's where we see a tolerance. People need more and more uh, to get an effect or to avoid going through withdrawal. Or we see the, in addition to the tolerance, the withdrawal symptoms. Without the drug, life becomes kind of unmanageable and they cannot function. So when we talk about specifically the opioid addiction, which just to give some perspective on that, in 1998 in Allegheny County, we had about 48 overdoses. Um, In 2014, it broke 300 for the first time. In 2015, it broke 400. And in more recent years, I believe it's up to 672 at the last count. Wow. And it's, it's so challenging that even coroners are having trouble categorizing all the overdoses to actually collect all of the numbers. Um, so, so that's not a trend we want to see. But then I think of, I think of with opiates in particular, kind of like uh, overeating, right? When you overeat, you activate new fat cells and your, those cells swell with fat. Kind of the same thing happens in our brains. Um, we don't see it, but on a neurochemical level, our chemical structure and functioning of our brain changes. And just like when somebody who is overweight commits to a diet, when someone who has struggled with drug dependency commits to a lifestyle of recovery, it is very much a process. Right. It is just not one that we're as perhaps easily able to see as somebody who commits to a diet. Uh, and that is one of the challenges we face as counselors uh, pharmacists and people in general of, of loved ones supporting those going through an addiction um, to kind of keep that in mind. So it's not only a mental habit loop that we're forming, but we're actually creating that physical change, like reforming our environment and our needs based on those habits that we have. Yeah, it's beyond just any type of thinking or behavior where it becomes a physical dependency and can be treated physiologically with medications as well as a component of the lifestyle of recovery. Got you. Wow. So with that, you look at a different approach with helping people recover. It's not just here's your medication, here you go, clock in, clock out, but you look at it really from the mental fitness aspect of things. Sure. So can you talk about like how your approach is to helping people through that addiction treatment process? Yeah, no doubt. So when we think about it, Medicaid assisted treatment can give someone the mercy of going through withdrawal and can kind of restore some normal physical functioning, lets people continue to work, lets people be engaged in their families, lets people continue to participate in good citizenship or maybe restore better citizenship. However, that alone, I don't feel is is enough to really be engaged in a lifestyle of recovery. We have 60,000 thoughts a day. And yet for many of us, that's a, a three to one or four to one negative to positive thought ratio. We're wired for survival, not for happiness. And the challenge is then, in many cases, it's not the drugs that are the problem. It's the emotion that's associated with that person, place, or thing. It's the emotion that's associated with that that people are looking to numb out with that drug. 
And if anything, the drugs are the temporary solution that later become the problem. But if we only eliminate the drug, we're not really addressing the underlying issues in one's thinking, behavior, supports, whatever it may be, that are actually at the root of what's driving the addictive behavior. And that's where I try to come in and explore that with people once the mercy from withdrawal is removed to make it so that it can be a lasting, sustaining, sustained recovery. Exactly. And I applaud you for that because that's how you help not just fix anything like that, but to help an ongoing, sustained yeah. recovery. Right. Um, I do that with clients that I work with with nutrition because a lot of people feel like I just need you know a quick fix. I just need to lose 20 pounds or whatever. But just like you said, it's the emotions that drive that behavior. Yeah. Um, if we feel overwhelmed or we stress eat or things like that, we're trying to you know, put a break on the pain that we're feeling. And we use food as that crutch and it's effective short term, but there's consequences with that weight gain or things like that. So looking at how can we make this a sustainable thing? Because with food, just as an example, people say I'm addicted to food. You find that to be true, that people have an addiction to food. Sure. Yeah. You see food abuse is is commonly, or if not a lot more so than drug abuse. Um, when we look at it, I believe, um, 74% of adult males are overweight, 68.8% of the overall population is overweight, and up to 35% of the population is obese. And those perhaps are dated numbers. They could be even worse. Um, There's a lot of influences that we have in our society that push us to label our emotions as bad, um, to numb them out. Even if we look at benzos being problematic, or as opiates being problematic, so are benzodiazepines. Yeah. When we think that our emotions are bad and we shouldn't feel this way, much like we're taught to numb out physical pain, we're also taught to numb out anxiety and benzodiazepine prescriptions have gone up um, 30% over the last 10 years and the average dose has doubled. Exactly. We're not getting to the root of the problem. Just like you said, once you start getting that consistent um, drug to the system, you become dependent. You, right. Your body starts adapting. So what used to work, so let's say Xanax, for example... A typical starting dose might be just one tablet. But Mm -hmm. if you take that consistently, that doesn't work as well as it used to. So then you have to go to two tablets, and then you might increase the dose. And then before you know it, you're down the slippery slope, um, which can happen, and that the body starts to change and adapts to that. So just like you were saying, um, which really comes to the big thing that we're battling in this country of opiate addiction. Uh, So with that, we we touched on the medications used uh, for that. Um, now when you're trying to treat addiction, there's three main medications that are used. Correct. There's the methadone, there's the suboxone Mm -hmm. and the Vivitrol. And you yourself actually worked in a methadone clinic for two years. Is that correct? I did. Okay. So looking at that, um, those are very helpful tools. However, they're often stigmatized. So there's a lot of shame, a lot of, you know, I want help, but being on that, I'm going to feel this way. So coming back to the emotion of the emotion being part of the problem, but also potentially getting in the way of treatment of just like freezing you in that state of uh, stigmata. So with that, what are the best ways to address that stigmatization and how can we all work together to increasing understanding and awareness um, with that part of the treatment process? Sure. So I think, I think maybe the first main misconception is that drugs like methadone and suboxone get someone high. Um, yes, they can be abused, but the fact is that most people who are taking these medications are already opioid dependent. And so they're not getting high off of the medication. They are just getting mercy from withdrawal to return to a normal state. Secondly, 
we have a lot of rules and regulations regarding methadone and suboxone, um, some of which make sense, uh, some of which, however, I wonder if act as barriers to treatment. So when we look at the whole population of people struggling with addiction, on average, maybe only one out of 10 of all of those who are struggling are actually getting treatment. Mm. So where is that gap? Where, why are we not reaching more people? Perhaps it's in funding, perhaps it's in misunderstanding, perhaps it's in obstacles to the treatment itself. When we look at all of those, those things, when we talk about just the misconceptions of how the medications work, the way to think of it perhaps is like this. If I break my ankle and it is severely broken, the doctor and I go see a doctor, the doctor's not going to say, do some physical therapy. He or she is going to prescribe me a crutch, right? Um, Literally. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's what these medications are. Uh, they're, they're a crutch. They help people um, continue to function. Yet, if I only use my crutch every other day um, and I keep running and not use my crutch, I'm not really going to see results. Yes. Right? So proper adherence to the medications is, is really important. But then even beyond that, if I use the crutch but I don't rebuild the strength of my ankle... I'm going to be crutch dependent for perhaps indefinitely. Yes. There's a lot that people can do to jumpstart their natural endorphins, to improve their thinking, to improve their environments, social behaviors, um, and, and to really increase their happiness and learn to master their emotions, their thinking, their stress management to eventually, perhaps if this is the right option for them, wean off of that crutch. Right. And that's a big if too. When we think of hypertension medication, we think of diabetic medication we, and insulin, um, we encourage people to change their lifestyle. We encourage them to eat uh, more of a plant-based diet. We encourage them to exercise. But we don't make it so that if they don't, we will threaten withdrawal of the medication. We don't time limit that medication. And yet we do for addiction. Mm. Even with depression, we encourage therapy. We don't require it. And it just makes me wonder... Does that make sense, right? If we in the medical community agree that addiction is a brain imbalance, just like uh, any other medical disorder, uh, depression or overeating is a physiological imbalance, um, why do we treat it differently? I think it's honestly, it comes down a lot to, we look at addiction as a choice and as criminal and other um, medical disorders and diseases as medical and I think that differentiation still exists today, but it's perhaps a disservice to actually getting people who need treatment the help that could really benefit them. Absolutely. I think that's very well said. And thank you for explaining that. I think um, with your analogy with, with crutches, like the broken ankle, right now with those types of medications, a lot of people might see it and, and label them as, oh, that's an addict or you know druggy or whatever the terms right. they may use, which I do not agree with. However, instead of looking at it in that frame with the stigmatization that it has, instead seeing it, you know, this person, we'll use your analogy, broke their ankle, they have a crutch they're not relying on, they're using that literally to get back on their feet right. so that they can build and develop the strength so that they can then again walk on their own. Yes. Excellent. This is a person who is actively in recovery taking this medication. Yes. And that to me is much better than having people overdosing in bathroom stalls, having used needles litter our soccer fields, having our coroner's office backed up with people that we can't even categorize dying of, of opioid overdoses. 
And so I think if we remove that that stigma and we recognize that people taking those medications are are actively in recovery and trying to better themselves, that that will encourage a lot more people to seek the treatment that can really give them the help they need. Absolutely. And I think that's a great mindset for everyone to have, uh, whether that's you, someone you love, or someone that you're helping to get this, is to really understand the process and, and the mindset behind that. Um, now, Steve, we talked a lot about medications here, which obviously as a pharmacist, I wanted right. to dive into. Right. Um, but looking at the counseling part, which you really thrive on with the mindset and looking at the emotion, the driving behavior for why they took that route to ease their pain or their situation sure. or trauma, which, which you had mentioned before. Yes. Um, how can we look at that and, and can you explain how counseling is part and integral in that process of recovery? Sure. So in trying to do that succinctly, <laughs> yeah, I know um, it's a big box. If I, if I were to pick one example, perhaps, or, or two, if we have 60,000 thoughts a day, we have a lot of negative thinking. We think we need drugs to have a certain feeling uh, when really I would argue that our feeling comes from within. Even with our emotions, we don't recognize that our emotions are, are quite simply our GPS system. They let us know if an action is out of line with a value. You value your health, but you're smoking cigarettes. You're going to feel guilty about that. The goal is not to numb out that guilt, um, but to listen to it. And when you feel better, your emotions let you know, just like your GPS system tells you to recalculate, that you're heading on track. Yes. But how many of us honestly say, thank you, world. I'm glad I'm feeling frustrated today. It is my GPS system letting me know that something's off track, and now I can respond accordingly and adjust. Yes, exactly. We don't label our emotions that way. It takes practice. We're not born stressed or depressed or anxious. We practice stressed, depressed, and anxious thinking. Yes. And it takes practice to rewire that as well. Exactly. So whether it's stress and looking at it as a negative threat, and we can change our mindset to looking at it as a positive challenge, whether it's our emotions that we label as undesired and we resist them and they persist, or worse, perhaps they become a part of our identity. I am anxious. I am depressed. And we manifest and attract more of that. We can perhaps, I help try to help people notice their emotional states allow it, but not allow it to define them. Exactly. And a lot of this, just, just like going to the gym, takes time. It's not lifting one pound one time and you're ripped. It's, it's going to the gym consistently to kind of counter condition some of the bad habits, either thought habits or um, behavioral habits. It takes some time to counter condition that, but it most certainly can be done. Exactly. And I think it's a huge component of recovery that works very well in conjunction for some people with Medicaid-assisted treatment as well. Absolutely. And in that, you said two really important points uh, that I actually use in, in my coaching with people looking to live their healthier lives. And it's interesting because I say dispense your full potential. Right. You say... Achieve your full potential. Yeah. So, so very much in line. Meaning of yeah, lines. Right, right. Um, but what you had said in helping people with that is looking at how you label your feelings and your words, words have a huge play on our mental psyche. Not I am stressed, but I feel stressed. Not yes. giving identity because literally it might just be one little word change, but you're giving so much power away. You're putting yeah. that label on yourself. When instead, if you make it external, I feel stressed rather than I am stressed, it might seem like minute, but just that little shift can make that, that's outside of me, that's something I can address because it's not me, it's not who I am as a person. Yeah. I can address that and move forward. And then the other thing that's really huge um, that makes sense to a lot of people when they hear it, but they, they need reminding, and, and I do too at times, absolutely, uh, with things I'm trying to change is 
if you're doing something or you're in a place that you're not happy about or you don't feel good about, it's not just, it didn't just happen overnight, right? It was like you said, patterns and thought processes over years. So if you're, you know, overweight and that's been a slow process for say 20, 30 years, and you have an expectation of reversing this in a day or a week, the, which is popular because we want the quick fix, right? That's why all the going to nutrition, that's why all the fad diets are so popular because, you know, rapid results. But if it took you 20 years to get here, how is expecting one week to reverse all of that? So just realizing that and having that expectation that yes, it can be done. You can make the change, but it's going to take time and process. And someone like Steve is going to be here to guide you through that because you're going to have help. You're going to have support from Steve. You're going to have medicated assisted treatment if that's right for you, the whole psychological component. So it's going to be a process. There's going to be a lot of learning and development through that, which is really a blessing. Um, But just knowing and expecting that it's not going to be a quick fix. It's very often progress over perfection. It's very often better decisions over perfect decisions. And if we look at any large achievement, it's a fairly simple formula of small actions times time equal great achievement. But it is that discipline to keep bettering yourself you know, kind of one day at a time and almost getting addicted to self-improvement, if you will, where I see the real lifestyle turnarounds and identity shifts in people in, in their recovery process that is just awesome to witness. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's really phenomenal because I'm sure that's so rewarding for you because you've had so many successful cases and clients and patients that you've worked with as well. Um, and, and actually, that, that brings me to a talk that I heard you do, I think it was two weeks ago now, two weeks ago to the day. Yeah. Um, you delivered a talk, uh, How Addiction Affects the Family, at the Beaver County Town Hall meeting, where you discussed empathy versus enabling, uh, which I think is an extremely important distinction to discuss, um, not just in regards to addiction treatment, but in helping anyone through any hardship in their life as these principles apply really anywhere that you're trying to change. Uh, so can you share that distinction between empathy and enabling and also like how we can be best ser- be of best service to helping people through their process? Sure. Um, again, kind of making this as, as brief as possible. My favorite definition of enabling is doing for someone that which they could do themselves. Yes. And I think anytime we do that for someone, we're doing a disservice to their own learning and to their own independence and their own growth. I am not against helping someone out who is in need. And if that gives them a boost, I can help them maybe think about things differently. Um, and I feel good about that. Great. And your kind of emotions let you know whether or not you are helping and you know being empathetic and kind, or if perhaps that's being taken advantage of, and then you'll have an emotion of resentment or obligation. And that might be a sign that you're doing for someone that which he or she could be doing themselves. What it really comes down to is that I unconditionally root for my clients. Just like as parents, you know, family members of someone who's struggling, we're going to unconditionally love that person. The challenge is as much as we want to be there to offer our love and support, unconditional love does not mean unconditional support. It means you'll root for someone, but being careful that you don't give up all of your emotional power and control to the outcome of that person because then it can border on codependency and that's not healthy either. Yes. So all of that being said, when we look at addiction as, as a family disease, it is also kind of, I think the family's responsibility 
breaking down those two words, it's their response and their ability to make changes, not just on the level of the individual, but on the whole family unit to kind of try to help and support that person, but also to be more aware of and to change any behaviors that might be enabling that addiction to continue. Wow. That's, that's powerful. Um, I think looking at a couple things you said, uh, responsibility, a big word, heavy word. There's a lot of responsibility in that word. Yeah. Response, ability, your ability to respond. I don't have time to work out. Eating healthy is not possible as a pharmacist. There's so many things to juggle. I just feel so stressed out. I can barely even keep it together. Guys, if this is you, I totally understand. I have been practicing pharmacist full-time for over seven years. I've been through the hurdles, living through the trenches, and through my time with that, have developed simple solutions to help empower you to not only fit in fitness, but nail your nutrition and master your mindset, empowering you to lead by example through living a healthy lifestyle. I put all these solutions in an easy to read, applicable, and simple guide for you to read in my new book, RxU, The Pharmacist's Guide for Managing Stress and Fitting in Fitness. If you haven't gotten your copy, check the show notes for a link so that you can get yours today and get started to dispense your full potential. I want to talk to you right now if you're listening and you have a friend or a family member or someone that you love uh, that is going through this addiction issue uh, and you're tr- they're trying to get over it, but you fall into this line of you want to help them and show them unconditional love, but they keep it's it might not be enough to them and they want you to do more and give more but you feel like you're enabling them. But if you stop giving, you feel like you're letting them down or abandoning them. Mm-hmm. And they might retali- They might get angry at you and call you out on those things, playing to your emotional uh, tie to them. So if someone's in this space, uh, what's a good way to handle that situation? If they wanna be there, they wanna be unconditionally loving and supportive, but they see that person trying to take advantage of it in a way that makes them dependent. Yeah. And, and they feel like whatever they do is never enough. How can, how can you, what advice can you give to someone that's in that situation? My first advice would be to get support yourself mm. because some people want to have kind, loving hearts, but maybe don't know how to show that. And that's not something we teach in high schools. How do you support a loved one who's struggling with addiction? But it is something that a trained counselor can really help with to help someone kind of, um, get a better understanding of what is helping, what is enabling. Uh, so that might be my first advice. The second advice would just be when we look at motivating behavior, we learn when we struggle. If we help someone out before they're struggling, they're not really learning. Um, and in essence, we don't really want to do anything for someone, but we might want to help them find a way for them to do it themselves. Uh, and, and the challenge there is how can we draw that line? How can we be loving and helpful without being enabling? I have a blog article called The 15 Myths of Heroin Addiction that I write um, to the audience of a loved one, uh, of a family member of a loved one who's struggling that gives some great tips there. Um, but my my main tip would be maybe to seek support for yourself through a, an Al-Anon or Naranon meeting or through some type of professional counseling that can really help you figure out how can I give love, give my time, and do things with this person? How can I, um, how can I give them uh, tools and, and time and acts of service and, um, and quality time and other things like that that maybe don't involve giving them money? 
right, that, that could be used otherwise. There you go. And that's really what we want to look at. How can we give, you know, acts of service, quality time, words of praise? How can we be there to listen uh, without perhaps giving you know, money or giving um, giving in to behaviors we don't want to see, giving attention to behaviors we don't want to see that might be accidentally positively rewarding that? So finding a, a back way. So how to give in a way that they might not know they need. So they think they, they do need money. Everyone needs money, of course. But like you said, that can be diverted different ways, especially with this situation. And they want money. However, they need support. Yeah. They need other things that they might not be aware of. So if you do that, that, that does two things. It creates service. So you're providing to them an unmet need. And eventually, hopefully, that'll create awareness. Like, I didn't know I needed that. Maybe there's more to this. Yeah. Maybe it's not all about the money. Maybe there's other avenues where I can really get myself on this path of recovery. Yeah. Which I think is really profound. So helping them achieve that base level of security and functioning. Food, housing. We don't want to necessarily withdraw that. That, that is cruel. But we also want to recognize that pain and struggle can be a great motivator. And if left with the decisions of be kicked out of the home and have to seek some sort of community shelter or go to treatment, that is a great way to leverage and incentivize one getting help for themselves. Mm. So it is not an act of cruelty. It is, however, um, an act of setting healthy boundaries. And right. I think that drawing that line is, is a fine line to kind of figure out. So... If you're listening again and you're helping someone or trying to help someone through this process, uh, a couple things is getting the resources, getting the bases met so that they can focus on that instead of focusing on the actual treatment program so they can not worry about you know basic needs, basic human needs. Once those are met, they can put their attention and focus on what really needs to be addressed, the treatment program. The other thing is... A lot of times we want to give so much that we lose sight of our own care, which is where I focus as a pharmacist uh, in helping other healthcare professionals is self-care in healthcare. We cannot pour from an empty cup. So there's a quote that really struck me that I heard at a Lewis Howes conference, uh, the Summit of Greatness, about a month ago in Ohio. And that is, these mountains you are carrying, you were only meant to climb. And that's pretty profound if you really think about that. It's you want to help, you want to do all these things, but you do not have to do it alone. There's no need to do it alone because you have support yourself. And if you don't, you can get that from someone like Steve at Mental Fitness. Um, so Steve, I think there was a phenomenal discussion here. I learned a ton personally, and I hope that you listening or watching uh, did as well. If you need support yourself or know someone that can, uh, without a doubt, Steve has so much experience in many different areas of the addiction treatment process. Uh, working in a methadone clinic, he's been doing this for several years, the, his, his business that he's been doing, and successfully helped many patients to find there is more than just medication. There are ways to come to recovery. Uh, so with that being said, how can people reach you, Steve? Mm -hmm. uh, where are you located and how can people start? Like, what's the first step? Someone's listening. They want to get in contact with you. What's the best way to, to get that process started? Sure. So the best way to reach me would probably be through um, mental-fitness.us. 
there is a survey on the contact me form that just gives me kind of some brief information of what's going on. And then if you leave your phone number, email address, I can reach out to you and we can schedule an appointment. My office is right here in Cranberry Township, Pennsylvania. And uh, if you want, that is probably the best way to get a hold of me. I love my job. I love being able to witness the the change I see in people when they commit to a lifestyle of recovery and find more happiness, find more purpose, find more pleasure in life, genuine pleasure. And it, it really fuels and drives me in what I do. And I, I couldn't be more thankful to, to be in the position I, I'm in um, to try to be a guide and help people find that for themselves. So Adam, I, I appreciate what you do too as a pharmacist, helping people find their own self-care, recognizing self-care is not selfish and that um, kind of helping people stay at a peak level of performance. Uh, that's, that is awesome. I've always admired your passion Thank you, as man. a pharmacist and your knowledge. So I appreciate you uh, us doing this today. Oh, I appreciate it. And like Steve said, he loves his job. I see that it's 100% genuine. Um, and how I know is fun fact, we actually met in high school gym class which uh, I'm the fit pharmacist. Fitness is really huge, not just mental and nutrition fitness, but also physical fitness. That is actually where that journey for me started uh, back in phys ed class yep. with this guy yep. who was a beast. And I'm like, wow, I need to go on that level. <laughs> so Now he's the beast. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's where the journey started. So it's been really amazing reconnecting with him uh, in the past year, uh, seeing all he's done and his passion. Is, it just shines. It's consistent and it's genuine. And I am just so proud of everything that, that you do, not just for your patients, but for our community. Um, like we started in this podcast, it's a it's a very big problem in our country, but it hits really close to home with our county and where we live. So being able to connect with someone that really makes that their mission is truly phenomenal. And I just want to acknowledge you, Steve, for all the amazing work, sacrifice, and dedication you give, um, not only to the community, but to your patients uh, that you have the honor of serving. So thank you so much yeah, for thank you. all that you do. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you guys and having Steve on the podcast to talk about how you can dispense your full potential through mental fitness. This is Dr. Adam Martin with the Fit Pharmacist Healthcare Podcast, signing off with the one and only Steve Wise. Be great, go forth, and dispense your full potential. All right, Fit Farm fam, until next time, I am out of here. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the show. If you are new to the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. Your time is invaluable, and I sincerely appreciate you sharing it here. Most importantly, hit that subscribe button so you get a fresh new podcast episode every single week. Also, please leave a rating and review for the show. I sincerely hope that you got at least one golden nugget of knowledge from this episode. If you did, please share this with one person who you can help dispense their full potential. That is how this community will grow organically. I don't ask for anything in return, so thank you for your action of support. 